Welcome to Body of Work Bites, the new bite-sized podcast series from the Heritage Team at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow. Join me, Kirsty Early, and my colleague, Claire Harrison. Hello. As we talk about some of the stories from the college's heritage in small, digestible episodes. So, welcome back to this week's episode of Body of Work Bites. Claire, how are we? We're all right, thank you. How are you? <laughs> I made that sound like there's more than one person in your office right now. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Very happy that I sure I'm sure I say this every time we record on a Friday, but I'm very happy it's Friday. <laughs> and I've actually got like a quiet weekend this weekend coming up, which is quite nice. Well, um, that's unusual for you. It is quite unusual for me. No plans for the Saturday, so that's quite nice. Don't know what I'll do. Climb a mountain. Maybe. Maybe. Just need to pick which one. Um, so this week, this is the last episode of this, oh, yeah. this bunch. So this week's episode, we will be covering the history of the Scottish Women's Hospitals um, and one of the collection items that we have in our heritage collections that are linking um, to this group of hospitals. But first of all, what I'll do is I will try and give a bit of background on the hospitals and I'm not going to spoil it, uh, but Claire will talk about the special surprise item that we have relating to the hostels. Don't know why I like to keep it a surprise because I feel yeah, like... See, kinda... see if you can do it all the way through without mentioning what it is. Um, okay. So the Scottish Women's Hospitals... Um, also known as the Scottish Women's Hospital for Foreign Service, that's the full title, um, were a group of hospitals that operated during the First World War, so definitely well over 100 years ago now. Um, and they are special because they were staffed almost completely by women, kind of says it on the tin, but um, women who were doctors, surgeons, nurses, cooks, ambulance drivers, you name it. The formation of the hospitals was down to the work and activism of pretty much one person. There'll be more people, but the person that is remembered for it is Dr Elsie Ingalls, who was a Scottish doctor, surgeon, suffragist and all-round legend. Um, some of you listening may have already heard of Elsie Ingalls. Um, she's not a, an uncommon name in, in women's history, at least, maybe just in in general history, she might be a bit more unknown because men, uh, history is run by men and written by men. <laughs> I thought you were just going to finish with because men. <laughs> I should have. I should. I do that so many times in like many other conversations in my life. <laughs> because men. Anyway, Ingalls was a licentiate of the college here through the triple qualification. Ingalls was part of a generation of female practitioners who were newly yet sceptically being welcomed into the clinical profession. So she wasn't long after, you know, the, the mid-19th century. Let me give a brief background into the women's journey into practicing medicine and surgery in the UK, but just a brief background. So the Medical Act of 1858 was put in place to legitimise the practice of medicine and surgery in the United Kingdom. And it required any practitioners to have a license in order to obtain entry into the medical register. Although 
this meant that illicit practitioners could be stamped out. So people that were, you know, the Sweeney Todds of their day and, you know, the dodgy dealers. It also meant that women were barred from practicing because apparently that was quite a thing in, in acts in the 19th century. It's just like, let's just get rid of women. <laughs> this is for men only. Um, <clears throat> for centuries, women had practiced medicine and surgery, uh, for example, as healers. But through this act, candidates were required to be examined through specific governing bodies, so like universities and the royal colleges, ourselves included. And most of these governing bodies did not welcome women. So it wasn't until another act, an act of parliament in 1876, that allowed women to gain licenses and become registered. <laughs> but at the same time, university, that I'd laughed because uh, my notes are, that's this bit is in capital letters. But at the same time, <laughs> universities and the like could still refuse to train women. <laughs> I'm laughing at my notes again. I really got ticked off at this, but <laughs> the next sentence is just great, really great. <laughs> <laughs> so the college here was hostile towards female practitioners, even writing to Parliament to complain about the acts that were being passed. It wasn't until 1884 that the college here in Glasgow allowed women to set the triple qualification, which I mentioned before, to gain licences in medicine and surgery. So basically, from the mid-19th century into the well into the 20th century, women received a ridiculous amount of prejudice within the medical and surgical professions. And it still ain't perfect today. Quote, end quote, Kirsty Early. Elsie <laughs> um, Ingalls undertook her medical training during the this storm of arguments and controversy. So she, from the start, never had it easy. She, she was kind of, her career was born in this, in this kind of, turmoil. Um, but part of her training, interestingly enough, was under Sir William McHugh, who was, mm -hmm. you know, quite an advocate for women um, in, in the profession, um, along with Hogarth Pringle as well, who was one of his colleagues in Glasgow. So Elsie Ingalls uh, gained her triple in 1892 and gained her degree from Edinburgh in 1899, so her actual degree it was her dissatisfaction with the lack of training available to women that got Ingalls involved in the suffrage movement in Scotland. And this was a common theme for many women who worked, eventually went on to work in the Scottish women's hospitals. A lot of them were fighting for women's rights in, in lots of different fields. So let's skip forward from basically her gaining her degree in 1899 to the First World War in 1914. Um, between this time, Ingalls, in her career, was, was starting to practice and she mainly, like a lot of other women, was focusing on maternity health and gynaecology. And we recently had an event on, around, you know, midwifery, obstetrics, gynaecology, and actually these fields were pretty common for women to go into. By the time of the First World War, Ingalls was 50, but still wanted to help towards the war effort. Funded through the suffrage movement, Ingalls was able to establish the Scottish Women's Hospitals. She had a medical unit ready. She literally was, you know, was presenting it. Uh, it was ready to be sent out to work. So she approached the Royal Army Medical Corps. She basically went to them offering a hospital unit on a plate, did all the work and offered it to them. But because of the aversion to women helping in the war effort, Ingalls was told, quote, my good lady, go home and sit still, end quote. 
Does that not just make your blood boil? Yeah. It's not just like my lady, my good lady, go home. It's the sit still bit that gets yeah. me. Oh. <laughs> Gee whiz. Don't worry your pretty little head about it. Don't, uh, oh, oh my gosh. However, all was not lost as the French government uh, heard of Ingles' offer and took it up. They're, oh, I can imagine them just being in the same room and be like, oh, we'll have, we'll have it. <laughs> yeah. Yes, please. <laughs> um, so the first hospital to be set up as part of the Scottish Women's Hospitals was based at the Abbey of Royaumont, known as L'Hôpital Auxiliaire. Uh, oh, what number is this? 301. And so the Scottish Women's Hospitals began. So over the period of the First World War, 14 units were established through the Scottish Women's Hospitals, working in France, Serbia, uh, Salonika, Russia, Romania, Malta, Malta, etc., etc., a lot more places, all across mainland Europe and elsewhere. The Salonika unit will be of particular focus for this episode because we have an item in the collection not only relating to the Scottish Women's Hospitals, but to that particular unit. And this is where I pass over to Claire to tell us about the surprise, the surprise item. What is it? What is it? You've done really well. I've done so well. I thought you were going to slip up right there at the end. I know, I nearly did. I really did. Yeah. I feel like we've really built this up now and people are expecting something really weird. Yeah, I I hope so. I really hope so. It's another one of our really lovely items. It's Mm. a photograph up. So, um... It was owned by a nurse called Annie Allen, yeah. um, and she was part of the Scottish Women's Hospitals. She joined the Girton and Newham unit. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, they were kind of named after the, the people that sponsored the unit, um, and most of the sponsorship money for their unit came from the Girton and Newham Ladies College. And um, so she joined that unit, and mm-hmm. her unit went out to Salonika, as you were talking about there. Mm-hmm. Um, and the photo album, it's predominantly about Annie Allen's time in Salonika, but it does also touch on her careers at Govan Cottage Hospital and Calder Grove Voluntary Hospital, which I think might have been a Red Cross hospital as mm-hmm. well during the war. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a little bit from there as well, though most of it is from her time in Salonika. Mm. Um, so just a little bit about Annie Allen. Really? So she was born in 1888 in Airdrie. Ah, um, I didn't know that. That's where I'm from. There you go. Oh, that's there you nice. You've learned something new. Yeah. Um, and she did a training at the Fever Hospital in Falkirk mm-hmm. before moving on to Elder Cottage Hospital in Govan. Um, and then pretty much around that time, she also signed up for the Scottish Women's Hospitals. Mm-hmm. Um, after the war, she comes back and she becomes matron of Kakubri Hospital. Um, so, yeah, so she resigns in 1933 mm-hmm. on her marriage to a W.M. McCall, who I think was a local farmer. Um, and it's not uncommon at that time to for women to retire yeah. when they get married. Yeah. Um, although she is a bit older by this point, so mm-hmm. she may have been thinking about quitting anyway. So she's heading for 50 at that point so mm-hmm. he's a bit older anyway mm-hmm. um so yeah so the album itself was donated to the college in 1981 and it's donated by a miss marion mcneil 
-hmm. And she had also been matron at Kakubri Hospital. Um, So that's where the connection comes in. They've both been matron there. I think Annie Allen had given the album to uh, Marion McNeil when she retired. Oh, my gosh. Um, I've got two notes. I'm a bit unsure. So one of her notes said it was passed from Annie Allen to Marion McNeil. Mm -hmm. The other note says it was relatives of Annie Allen that passed it to Marion McNeil. So I don't know which one's right. But either way, as a family to pass it on Mm -hmm. is still quite a a big deal, I think. Yeah, totally. Particularly, you know, the kind of thing it's covering as well. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's how we ended up with the album um and sometimes in these podcasts i actually sit with the actual mm-hmm. item there have been a number of exceptions this time so the audubon too big uh yep. annan's photograph album too big and mm-hmm. um, scottish women's photo album too fragile yeah so too fragile. this is yeah this is one of the items we very 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 rarely get out um mm-hmm. because it is in such a fragile state mm-hmm. that's actually not the photos the photos are in Pretty good condition. Yeah, pretty um, yeah. But we are lucky in that it is completely digitised. So we have all the photos digitised as well, which means we're handling it less, but people can still get use of it, which is great. I just realised I'm sitting here smugly acting as if I was the one that digitised them. I did not. <laughs> <laughs> I just looked so proud and I was like, wait, it wasn't me. Hang on. <laughs> anyway, carry on. Sorry, that's quite funny. I can see you sitting there smiling, thinking, mm hmm, yeah, you've a good job there. <laughs> I totally just claimed someone else's work. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, they've actually been digitised for quite a long time. I think it's one of the first things we actually had digitised in its entirety. Yeah. Which is great, just because of the state it was in, really. Um, it would be great to get it properly mended and conserved. Oh, but... Of course. So the photos themselves, as I said, depict life in Salonika. Mm-hmm. Um, there's actually, although obviously it was a very, very grim time, actually a lot of the photos show the more sort of day-to-day life. So there's pictures of the nurses sewing, pictures of them in the field kitchen, uh, just camp life in general. There's a really lovely one of Annie Allen sitting in her tent, which is captioned, My Little Home in the East. Mm. Um, you can see her just surrounded by a few of her things in there that she's obviously taken just to make it feel a little bit more like home. Um, there's photos of fancy dress parties, hmm. which often involves the patients as well, dressed up mostly as nurses, because obviously that's the costume yeah, they've no, got access to. Not many on hand. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so it's quite good fun. So there's some really good fun ones there, and um, lots and lots and lots of tea parties. Um Oh, you would love that. They, I mean, despite the oh, know, yeah. the war and the war front, tea parties, you're there. Tea parties, yeah. They loved a tea party. So uh, pictures of them sitting on the grass, having like a tea party with some of the patients. Um, there's one of them being invited onto a French ship called the Sphinx, which is obviously stationed somewhere in the area at the time. Um, and they were invited on board as a thank you. Um, and they had like a proper big tea party for them, which was nice. And so some really nice ones. But then also, you know, there are the other photos as well. So that you know, there's pictures of patients mm. um, heavily bandaged and mm-hmm. goodness knows what, uh, missing limbs. Mm. Um, there's pictures of bombed out buildings um, that have been, you know, targeted quite nearby to them. I don't think the hospital was ever hit. The hospital... I don't think so. 
No, I think it was actually set up in an old silk factory. Mm-hmm. Um, and then obviously the camp all built around it where they uh, lived and the kitchens were and all that kind of thing as well. Um, and then there's pictures of regiments visiting as well. They turn up and there's like music and playing of bagpipes and drums and things. Oh. There's pictures of those. And then also really poignantly, because I think we perhaps forget, you know, whilst there's lots of death from, yeah. you know, the soldiers, the patients that turn up, also, you know, there's the loss of life with the nurses and the doctors and the surgeons there as well. And there's a really mm. poignant one of Annie Allen standing by the grave of Sister Bert, who passed away there. Um, yeah. I think from dysentery. Yeah. Or dysentery. Um, so there's some really sad and poignant photos in there as well. It's a real, it's a real mix in there mm. um and a lot of the photos obviously feature annie allen mm-hmm. but she's not in all of them mm. but one of the sad things about the photo album in a way is there's very few names in it so we don't yeah. know who a lot of the people are um it's very unusual to get any other names maybe like the head sister might be named so sort of like the more senior people so people mm-hmm. like um she's with louise McElroy. um who's out there with her as well she was a surgeon um so she's named so probably the more prominent people there are named but yeah, more senior people places. yeah yeah that just aren't but i guess you know i, I assume it's annie ellen writing in the album although i don't know that for sure yeah um i, I would expect that because she always puts a little cross <laughs> she puts a little cross on herself sometimes with the photos as well so oh. you can see it here. So I wonder if the families have gone through and done that. Mm. Um, maybe. Oh <laughs> gosh. So, yeah. so it's a really, it's a really special thing to have in the mm. collection and capturing the really important work mm-hmm. that those women actually did out there after they were initially told to go away. What use can you possibly be? And I think the photo album shows what use they could possibly be. Of course, yeah. I think it's quite it's quite a similar story to a lot of the kind of women's history that we do have in our collections and that, you know, once you find out these amazing, amazing stories, you also find out actually not many people know these amazing stories unless they've looked into them themselves. So to carry on from, from Claire's um, discussion about the album and, and Annie Allen, Besides Annie Allen, there are many notable women who served with the Scottish Women's Hospitals during the First World War. So as Claire mentioned, there was uh, Dr Anne-Louise McElroy, or Louise McElroy, she was better known, who was a physician, surgeon, specialising in obstetrics and gynaecology. So before volunteering with the hospitals, McElroy had applied for fellowship at the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Glasgow and had been refused due to ongoing prejudice and gender inequality within the professions. So she headed up a hospital that that Annie Allen was uh, going to subsequently work at. So the the unit at Salonika was actually based in, I don't know how to pronounce this, it's T-R-O-Y-E-S, Troyes? Yeah, it's France, Troyes, or however you say it. Let's just say France. (laughs) So um, McElroy headed up this unit, uh, which was previously uh, stationed in France before it went to Salonika. Another volunteer of the Scottish Women's Hospitals was Louisa Jordan, 
who most will now know because, um, especially in Scotland, because of lockdown and COVID-19, because there was a unit set up in Glasgow that was named after her. Um, at the end of the war, the hospitals were gradually closed with many of the serving women returning home to continue their lives and careers, or at least trying to continue their careers. Um, to quote Cornelis, who undertook an in-depth study of the lives of the women who worked um, for the Scottish Women's Hospitals, you know, did a massive research into actually the careers of these women after and a lot of statistics and the things they specialised in. Quote, situation for female doctors during the first half of the 20th century was very complex. It was common for women doctors at the time to hold several simultaneous positions to make ends meet especially during the early stages of their careers. A frequently occurring combination of occupations was something with women and children, as well as a position in public health. So this very much reflects the careers of the women we know of through our collections and would have reflected the ongoing inequality women experienced in the 20th century. It would have been difficult to secure permanent positions, senior positions, or grow in their careers. Hence why many women joined medical missions abroad too. So that's something we've discovered before and through our colleague Kristen's research before, is that a lot of women went abroad and it was because they couldn't get more senior positions in the United Kingdom. Um, I'm sure there was lots of other reasons for like, you know, <laughs> the good effort and being a genuinely nice person and also imperialism as well is probably a reason too so <laughs> you know yeah it's a tough one <laughs> to quote Cornelis again many of these women held the same junior or assistant assistant positions for the duration of their careers without ever getting promoted and it wasn't because they weren't good at their jobs it was because they were women I'm actually keeping quite calm right now I'm quite surprised you're doing well <laughs> of the group that Cornelis researched um, in, in the project, uh, only 15 women obtained consultancy positions. Wow. That's quite shocking, isn't it? Mm -hmm. um, Louise McElroy, who we mentioned before, went on to become the first female professor at a university in Britain. So all's not lost. She was the first female professor of any specialism in the UK. From rejected fellowship to professorship, that's not too bad. Cornelis' study also looked into the rate of marriage among the women. Oh, this links to what you were saying before. Ooh. It is still an idea today that women can't have successful medical or surgical careers, as well as marriage and kids. It's always kind of, you know, I know a lot of, of women who've always had to kind of have that talk with themselves because they feel like they can't do both. It's also linked to the fact that it's very much a societal expectation in lots of professions that, you know, women... If they want to have a family, they, it's almost like you have to sacrifice your career. So there is the, this idea that the First World War really propelled women's rights um, in, in the votes and, and in work. And it definitely most likely played a part, but it didn't necessarily improve career opportunities in the medical and surgical spheres. And this is, you know, we still see this kind of inequality today in a lot of different professions. Um, you see statistics of, you know, so many surgeons are men or so many... Um, so many in certain specialisms are, are women and you know we can look at stories like this and think oh that's you know that was a hundred years ago surely it's changed now it's changed a bit yeah. but not 
significant, not a significant yeah. amount for that amount of time. Am I making it up that there's a stat that midwives, it's 99% of all midwives are women? I wouldn't be surprised. I don't know the stat, but I wouldn't, I, I definitely think there's more women. Same mm. with nurses, more nurses are women. So it's just, it's an interesting story in how, like, there's it's a great story about a great item we have in our collection, a great story linking to women's fight for loads of things, voting rights, you know, job rights, just status in society, yet, you know, for something that was over 100 years ago, unfortunately, there's not been a, a massive a massive change, which is such a shame. But I still love yeah. the item, still love it. I love a good yeah. photo. Mm-hmm. Um, there's definitely a photo of um, Annie Allen sitting with a cat as well, by the way. Yeah, there's there's quite a few cat pictures. <laughs> there's quite a few yeah. cats. <laughs> the cats. Yeah. We don't seem to be as enthused about the cats as we were, like the dogs in the Merenskirt collection. <laughs> yeah, we're not biased at all. We're not biased at all. It's just like there was days where we'd search for more dog photos, and then like we see a cat yeah. and Annie Allen, and we're like, all right, it's a cat. Mm, that's a cat. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks again for tuning in to this episode of Body of Work Bites. You can find more information on the episode topic on our Heritage blog, heritageblog.rcpsg.ac.uk. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at library at rcpsg.ac.uk. You can follow us on Twitter at RCPSG Heritage, and you can also subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts.